Well, welcome everybody to the SeaTac room. All two people in attendance. <laughs> a few in the crowd. Welcome to day two. We have a great panel put together today. My name is Andy Nichols. I'm a co-host of the Paul McCartney Solo Podcast, Two Legs. Joining me today is Kid O'Toole, co-host of Talk More Talk, Top Most of the Popper Most, Queen of All the Things, Beatles Media. That's her. And also to my right is the uh, co-author of the recently released McCartney Legacy, Alan Cozen. Welcome. And Mr. Ed Chen, also co-host of Pop the Most, and when we when they was fab, joining us today for a nice discussion on 50 years of Band on the Run. Not quite 50, we know it's 50 years in December. If you attended or watched any of our panel talks at the fest in the spring in New York, Red Rose Speedway was a big topic of conversation then because the album was just about 50 years old then. So we're happy to have everybody here today, and we're recording this so it's going to go on all our channels so more people will see it that way. So we're happy to have everybody here today. There's somebody. Hi, Wally. Oh, okay. So you guys are all right. Yeah, we're fine. Okay. We're, we're fine. So um, um, welcome, and uh, Alan, first initial thoughts on everything so far, your Chicago Fest experience. How's it been here? choice band on the run where do we go with it it's an album that is so popular but we're going to bring some points up tonight uh, today as a panel that we're going to kick around to our panelists just to kind of some bullet points history and really kind of contextualize where it sits now we know it's a hugely successful record um i guess the first question we could ask the panel and alan is do you think that it'll remain that it'll have that staying power as mccartney ages on and gets older or will another album slide into its place? Or will it always be that iconic album that he's associated with? Yes, me. Yeah, uh, you first. You know, I, I kind of think that after 50 years, it has remained the iconic album it is, and it's probably going to stay that way. Uh, it's a lot of people's favorite McCartney album, and uh, you know, he's done other albums that I've thought were, you know, very powerful albums, maybe just as good, although very different. Maybe Flowers in the Dirt, for instance. Uh, and McCartney 3, I like McCartney 3 a lot. Um, and, and, and quite a few in-between bands on the run and now. And yet, for some reason, if you ask people, what's your favorite McCartney album, they always default to bands on the run. Um, so, you know, it, it, it deserves that status in a way, but I think uh, people really need to look more closely at the other ones that they haven't looked at closely at or have forgotten. Um, and, and that, in a way, is what we're doing in the, in the series of books. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree, Alan. I, I think there are other terrific albums, and I, I like your perfect for as well. Um, but uh, but I, I do love Band on the Run still. I, I think, um, you know, it's, it's really a, such a consistent uh, album, and uh, you know, it's been a favorite of mine for such a long time. Um, you know, I mean, there's just not really bad track on that album. I mean, it's it's just uh, you know some of the strongest uh, songwriting. Um, you know, some real uh, diversity, and uh, I I just um, you know. As I said, I can't think of really a bad track on, on that album, and we're going to talk about it in a minute. But it, you know, it came out of such you know some difficult circumstances for sure, which you know you uh, outlined in your your terrific book, and uh, you know the fact that there were so many issues uh, that that uh, arose, and yet such an incredible album came out of it uh, is is just remarkable. So it's still a favorite of mine. Yeah, I mean, the media has always said, what is going to be the next band on the run? And it's been that way almost <laughs> since band on the run. You know, Tug of War. Tug of War is the next band on the run. Uh, uh, Flowers in the Dirt. Flowers in the Dirt is the next band on the run. Chaos on Creation. Chaos on Creation is the next band on the run. But it's never actually happened. The other thing which hasn't been bought up, McCartney's played almost every single song from the album, with one exception, which we'll bring up in a little bit, uh, Live and so he clearly thinks it's one of his best. 
Mm. Um, Alan, talk to us about the um, kind of the, the obviously we know the trip that went into it, but compared to what he did for Rainbow Speedway, which we worked on for such a long time, this record was re recorded really quickly. That's right. Um, and compared also to Ram, which took a long time. Right. Um, yeah, you know, each one of his albums has an interesting story behind it, and they're all different. Um, <clears throat> you know, I mean, we're, we're about to start writing uh, uh, London Town, which is a lot of it is recorded on a boat. Yeah. <laughs> uh, with Band on the Run, you know, he wanted to do it in uh, a studio outside London. And he got, uh, you know, a listing from EMI. He considered Rio. And I think he would have had a much better time <laughs> if he had done it in Rio. Uh, but and he also wanted a place with a beach. Not that he got to go to the beach. And uh, you know, he 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 made the wrong choice, and he made the most of it, and he stuck with it. You know, uh, as long as he could, anyway. Um, you know, and some of the album, by the way, was recorded in London. You know, so. Uh, it, it has this you know, image of being well done in Lagos, but, but that's not really true. Um, but a lot of it was. And I forget the question. Um, just about the, uh, why it was so quick. Oh, um, well, yeah. It was Compared quick. to Red Rose and Ram and all that. You know, it might not have been so quick, or it might have, <laughs> if Denny Sywell and Henry McCullough hadn't quit. On one hand, if they hadn't quit, it might have been quick because they had been rehearsing the album up in Scotland before the trip and so they really had it down as a band and they could have gone in and recorded it as a band and maybe that would have been quick. Um, but then on the other hand maybe Paul would have then done his usual thing of saying well this isn't quite good enough, let's redo that, let's add to that, let's do that. You know, if, if there hadn't been the defection of those two, he might have taken more time on it as he had done with previous albums. Because Sywell and McCulloch left, that kicked Paul into one of his things, uh, one of his personality, I don't want to say quirk, it's not really a quirk, but if you, if you do something that is telling Paul, you know, I, no, I, I don't, we're not going to do this, he will say, I'm going to show you. Which has been him his whole life. His whole life. And so in this case, he not only wanted to show John, George, and Ringo that he could make the album that is uh, not only a big hit, as his, his previous album sold well, but there was mixed critical response. He wanted the big hit and the critical response, which Band on the Run finally got. And he he was determined to do that to show his former bandmates and his new former bandmates that, you know, okay, you 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 quit, but we went ahead and did this anyway. And uh, you know, and and the reason I mean Henry quit because uh, it was another one of those instances, like with My Love, where Henry wanted to play a solo he had in mind, and Paul wouldn't let him. He, he did let him on My Love, and it went quite well. Um, but he wouldn't let him, they, this was on uh, No Words, which was the song that Denny started and Paul helped him finish. Uh, Henry had a solo he wanted to play, and Paul wouldn't let him, and Henry just walked out. Sywell then said, um, listen, I mean, he had some, some personal reasons that he was getting fed up as well, but his musical reason was, look, Henry's gone, we should get a new guitarist, teach the new guitarist these songs, rehearse with them just as we have done, and then go to Lagos. There's no reason to go to Lagos now. And Paul said, well, I want to go to Lagos now. We're going to do it the way we did Ram. We'll just overdub. Uh, and, and Denny thought that was a really bad idea. And adding that to all of his personal issues, 
some were financial, some were to do with the way he had treated Denny Lane uh, when Denny Lane's kid was born, although Denny Lane didn't quit. Um, yeah. But, uh, uh, you know, he just left. And, uh, and that really hurt Paul because Denny Sidewell and Paul had become really tight. Right. You know, they went back to Ram, you know, and... Uh, Which you illustrated so well in the book. I mean, those sessions and the relationship that those two had in New York working on Ram comes yeah. shining through in your book. Right, thank you. Um, you know, and, um, and I think that, you know, because of all of that, it, it, he had to do it fast. Um, he might have stayed at Lagos if not for, you know, the, the, the day after he was mugged. You know, everyone knows the famous mugging story, right? Uh, the day after, he went into the studio to do more work and collapsed. Uh, and it was some sort of a respiratory thing, apparently. He got taken to the hospital. He was told to uh, just rest for a couple of days before doing anything. And while he was resting, he called London and said, okay, we're coming back. Yeah. Um, and then they finished, you know, things like Jet, which I'm in London. And right. And more overdubbing in London and that kind of thing. But even once he got to London, really, really pressing to get it done quickly. And, uh, and it was probably a good thing, not lingering over it so long. Long. You know? you, when you do something quickly, assuming that you're good enough to do it quickly, there's an energy that, that happens. And I think you feel that on Band on the Run, and that's why Band on the Run may have the stature it has. Great. And circling back to what we said earlier about Paul's decision to just go down a rabbit hole and get it done, those members of Wings quit. But that decision to do that, as you illustrated in the book, kind of comes at a little bit of a, uh, expense to Denny Lane, who said basically he felt like a sideman on the record. Well, you know, Denny is a, 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 an odd duck. <laughs> Denny didn't have to say that. You know, Denny worked on those tracks. It, it wasn't like he just sat around, like, you know, Ringo said, learning to play chess uh, while Paul was doing all the work. You know, Denny was involved in the whole thing. He, he could very easily have said, yes, this is me, Paul and Linda. But, and, and he even had a song on the record. And he came back and then and took that attitude of, uh, well, you know, I'm just a side man. I'm the utility player. Right, right. What he said. And I, I don't understand that, except that um, he likes to complain. <laughs> and uh, this was an opportunity to do that, so he did. <laughs> but you know, he was he was fully a part of it. I, I, I don't really understand. Feel, when you listen to the record, you don't feel like Denny Lane is a side man. He's very present on the record, yeah. especially with no words as a co-writer, as a backing vocalist. He's very present on the record. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, it was weird. I I found an interview he did uh, just this year with Billboard, and he kind of changed his tone. He then you know it kind of sounded like he was saying, "Oh, I was." You know, Parker in, in the sessions, and also now he seems to be changing and saying, Oh, I wasn't just a hired gun so ready. What? Yeah. <laughs> well, how many times has Denny said, Yes, Wings belongs in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? No, Wings doesn't belong in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. yes. Yeah. So, so to go back to your previous point, would the record have been as good or worked as well had they gone and waited on getting another guitar player? Um. You know, that's one of those imponderables. Um, and I guess it depends who the guitar player would have been. I mean, I, what if it was McCullough, uh, Jimmy McCullough? But, you know, that could have been quite interesting. Um, Denny Sidewell insists, and, and we've talked to him about it several times, that the demos that they made of Band on the Run up in Scotland were better than the album. So if they had gotten the other McCullough, uh, and he learned the parts and they went and did it, it, it might have been better. I mean, it, 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 it remains to be seen whether the demos are really better than the album. Um, and thank, thank, but thank goodness they're not lost in trash cans. Right, right. They, they do exist. Yeah, in Legos. yeah, and, uh, yeah the, the four tracks of those still exist in Paul's archive, and it's, it's kind of odd that he has never released any given the, the several bands on the run reissues right. that, that yep. he's done. Well, the rumors one more is coming sometime. Well, that's, that's, a, good, right. that's, yeah. a, good, that's, that's right. a good segue because... Well, I hope he includes the, some of the demos. 
But, you know, I mean, if, you, if, if you're a conspiracy theorist, you would say the reason he didn't include the demos in things they are there is but who knows? You know, maybe they're not. Maybe they are. I mean, maybe maybe Denny is saying that just because, after all, he's on them. Although he also says that Paul basically just sort of did more or less what his drumming was. <laughs> so uh, I don't know. It, 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 it's hard to say. I, I, I'm not sure I have an opinion about that one. Okay, we'll have to wait and see. I mean, you know, if you think about when circling back to Denny Lane. If you've listened to the 25th anniversary edition of Men on the Run, he's very complimentary at that moment in time because he was contacted and he gave you know, a lot of great interviews for that bonus disc of audio. So Teddy's always a strange one where he goes with his opinions on this record. You know, we have, we have to, um, when we're dealing with, De Denny wouldn't talk to us, uh, so we have, you know, there's a four-hour video interview with him uh, that was done by Prism Films that we had, and we have, like, tons of his interviews that he's given over the years, so we have plenty of Denny talking, and we always have to run it through the what is Denny's mood filter, um, because Denny will say things like, uh, uh, yeah, you know, Paul wants me to write more, and I don't know, but and, and we're going to go on tour, and but, but I don't have any songs. And he says this a few months after putting out Alain, his solo album. So what do you mean, I don't have any songs? And why not do those when instead of, you know, they, we went out for the 75, 76 tour, and what does he do from his back catalog? Go Now, right. you know? Right. Now, Go Now was a big hit, and probably lots of people wanted to hear it, but he did have an album, you know, that came out in, like, you know, 73. So, uh, you know, it, 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 I just don't know what to make of him, you know? We, we, so we try to run his quotes through the What's Danny's Mood filter, and then we, you know, use them uh, <laughs> and, and, and try and explain context, you know? Yeah. Um, I wonder if we could talk a little bit about, you know, of course, uh, uh, recording the album Legos, and, um, you know, and yet the album really doesn't have um, <laughs> an African kind of influence at all, and, uh, and obviously uh, he had a meeting with Fela Kuti, uh, which uh, didn't exactly... Uh, go according to plan, although he did go to Fela's club and had a very interesting experience. So I wonder if we could talk a little bit uh, about about that. You know, why wasn't there more of of an African an Afrobeat influence? Well, this effort to go and get all these kind of nature, all these sounds that, that are unique to this environment, and other than maybe a little bit of uh, Mamounia, you don't really hear it on that record much at all. No. It, um, there is a uh, Nigerian. Uh, <clears throat> there is a Nigerian percussionist on Bluebird. Um, recorded in London. <laughs> well, they got back. Um, you know, he talked about how he wanted to find some African musicians to work with, but he didn't particularly make any effort to find any. And then, you know, they went to Fela Kuti's club, um, had a great experience listening to the music. I mean, he, he, Paul was, was very moved by that performance. Um, and in addition, um, smoked what was apparently a, a level of marijuana that even Paul, who's an expert, <laughs> had not encountered before. Um, uh, but then, you know, Fela came along the next day and accused him of wanting to steal the black man's music. I mean, something that Paul Simon dealt with years later, decades yeah, later, yes. uh, where Paul Simon actually did use, you know, and, and, and you could argue that a lot of these bands were, you know, had international careers because of Paul Simon's record that they wouldn't have had had they just stayed and not, you know, right. kept yeah. it pure. He gave them credit, he said who they were, you know, um, and Paul probably would have too, you know, but he, he didn't. And, and the thing is that the, you know, the songs were written before they went to Lagos, so he was doing the arrangements that 
that they'd worked up in Scotland, and maybe they're just sort of, if he was going to use African sounds, he would have had to reconfigure all of these songs, mm -hmm. and the songs were, were ready to go, so I, I think it was uh, a word that's used a lot these days in politics, aspirational. It was aspirational <laughs> that he wanted to use African musicians, mm. but when it really came down to it, he, he didn't hire any or, you know, try to lure any. Even when he was at the Fela Kuti concert, you know, he was talking to the musicians, but the musicians came along and they were a little hostile. You know, like, what are you doing here? You're, you're trying to steal our vibe, maybe. You know, maybe they weren't thinking that he was going to hire some of the musicians, but he was just going to take their stuff and do it himself. Right. You know, um, so I, I just, the time sort of wasn't right for him to do any African-influenced stuff, even if he wanted to. Uh, but I, I kind of think that because the music was written before he went to Africa, that it was sort of unlikely anyway. Yeah, if he had gone there and not written anything, then maybe it would have had a little more of a, you know, organic sound while he yeah. was there. But he went there with that material written. Right. <laughs> you know, and that was a handy thing, because when Kuti came along and, and accused him, Paul was able to say, you know, look, listen to this. So I'll play you some of the tapes. It's not, it's not that kind of stuff. No. You know, and what he probably played him was, you know, Helen Wheels, where he was having trouble creating the shuffle beat. Oh, well, we'll get to that in a little bit. Which, which probably African musicians wouldn't have had trouble. Alan, tell us about um, the Ginger Baker story with Band on the Run. Ah. Uh, okay. So. <clears throat> Paul had this manager, uh, Romeo, his last name. Yes, Vincent. Vincent Romeo. Uh, and Vincent Romeo went down to Lagos to sort of check it out before Paul went. You know, see how the studios were and all that. And, and what he probably did was go to, to Ginger Baker's studio, because EMI's studio, once Paul got there, was completely a wreck. I mean, they, they were still putting things together, and the equipment was... You know they they didn't like they didn't multi-track down there. Basically, a whole group, a choir or a big ensemble would come in and they would record them live. Um, and it wasn't set up for multi-tracking. They 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 couldn't play the uh, all of the other tracks through the headphones while uh, an addition was being done. It, it just was not ready for prime time. Um, so what Romeo probably had done was look at Ginger's studio, which was state-of-the-art and brand new. Um, and he apparently, according to Ginger, left Ginger with the impression that Paul was going to do the album there. Um, from EMI's point of view, that idea was a non-starter because um, if you record as an EMI artist in EMI studio in Lagos, it's an internal charge mm -hmm. and it's, you know, kind of the way companies move money around and it's kind of like it cost them something but it didn't cost them something, whereas Ginger's studio would have cost them. Right. Um, so Ginger got, you know, quite angry about this and Paul said, you know, look, I never, I never said I was going to record in your studio. But well, then when Fela Kuti came with his little army and had that uh, confrontation with Paul, uh, uh, Jeff Emmerich went into the, uh, you know, with the engineering part of the studio and called Ginger and said, you got to come down here, you know, because Ginger and Fela were friends. And, uh, and so Ginger came along and he diffused the whole situation. And so Paul then went the next day to record at Ginger's studio. Uh, and that was Picasso's last words, a very complicated thing to record mm -hmm. in Ginger's studio. Um, and also kind of a funny thing because Paul was playing all the drums on this record uh, because Sywell wasn't there anymore. Um, and that meant he had to do the drum parts basically in front of Ginger, which <laughs> I would want to do. Yeah. You know? 
Um, but Ginger participated in some extra percussion. You know, they went outside and got you know uh, uh, cans full of rocks and shook them around. And, yeah. You know, because there's all kinds of sounds on Picasso's last words, and uh, uh, so and that actually was the last session that they did in Lagos. Well, coming back to London, yeah. Because on the, that night is when they went out for a walk, having been told don't go out on your own. Yeah. Uh, and at night especially, uh, it's just not safe. Uh, and they decided that they would anyway. And what was his reasoning? Well, you know, when I went to Harlem, um, everyone told me not to walk around on my own, and I did, and I was perfectly fine. And so it will probably be perfectly fine too. And they're walking along, and a car full of young guys comes up and slows down, and Paul doesn't know what's happening. Paul thinks they're offering him a ride. And he says, no, you know, thanks, we're, we're just out for a walk. So they get out of the car. And I mean, on one hand, it's a harrowing scene. And on the other hand, it's really kind of comic. Because they come out and they say, so are you tourists? And they're saying, yeah, you know, we're, uh, we're, we're just visiting and we're out for a walk and we just, you know, thanks, you know, thanks for the offer, but we're <laughs> just going to walk. And uh, the, the guys from the car are equally confused because, like I say in the book, usually people know when they're being mugged. <laughs> but Paul didn't, you know. Paul didn't live in a world where people got mugged. No. Paul was always, you know... Uh, so, you know, then they, they took all their stuff, they took Linda's cameras, they took uh, the, the bag with Paul's demo cassettes and, and all of that, and, uh, and, and then Paul and Linda went back to their, uh, the house they, little house they were renting in this compound, uh, sort of a, a compound for foreigners, it was supposed to be relatively safe, but this mugging took place within that compound. Within so, yeah. Um, so they went back there, and then there was, uh, there was like a power cut temporarily. You know, these kind of things happen. Uh, and Paul and Linda immediately thought that the guys who mugged them had come back and cut the power, <laughs> and were going to come in and get them. I mean, they, you know, they, they, they were terrified. Uh, and that's, pr that's probably one reason Paul collapsed the next day. I yeah. mean, this is a lot of pressure on... You know, you, you, this was a traumatic experience. Um, so that was, you know, I've gone a little beyond the question. That no, was, no, but it uh, all kind of connects, obviously. Yeah. yeah. So where does where does Linda's interjection that she saved Paul's life come from? You know, don't kill him. That's Bill Paul. Right. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, I think yes. we didn't use that quote in the book because, you know, we read like. 80 million versions that they both told of that story. And that was only in a couple of them that were the farthest from the incident. What, what we tended to do when we had um, multiple quotes to choose from and multiple versions of how something happened is we tended to go with whatever was closest to the actual event. And that can work both ways. Um, on one hand, you might think whatever's closest to the actual event is probably the most accurate because it was closest to the event. On the other hand, um, if it's close to the event, they may have a particular agenda that they wanted to put forth and not say certain things or say certain things uh, and that, you know, 10 years later they might not have been concerned about and so might have added something that they had deliberately left out, or they might have added something that was an embellishment. Really hard to tell. But, you know, we, we, we generally tended to go with whatever was closest to the event on, uh, on theory one. That's a fascinating way to research and go through all your data, because you're like, okay, this story's been told 55 times right. in 50 years. How do we suss out what is, where is the most accurate representation told? Was it in 2000? Was it in 1975? That's really, that's why it takes a long time. So that's a lot of work. It is. And we have, um, I've lost count of what we have, but we have 
an archive of video interviews, we have an archive of audio interviews, and then we have everything we could find in print. And Adrian lives near the British Library. There's a branch of the British Library in, in Yorkshire where he is. Uh, and he basically looked at every newspaper in the world. I mean, uh, it, it, it's astonishing the stuff he found. <laughs> like if they went to Jamaica, he got all the Jamaican papers right. to get anything that, that might have mentioned them. Um, and you know, so so we have we probably have ten thousand pieces of interview material uh, to choose from. Wow. So yeah. Wow. So that's that's fascinating. So let's let's take this. So the Lagos trip is over. Let's go back to London now. Their their back call is working post-production on the album. <clears throat> Tell us about the story of uh, the inclusion of No Words for the American release and not the British release. Helen mm -hmm. Why? I'm sorry, Helen Wheels. Yeah, I was thinking about Danny Lane. <laughs> Helen Wheels. <laughs> yeah, Helen Wheels on the, and that why, why, and that's a very polarizing opinion. You ask many Americans, and I think, or will tell you, they want Helen Wheels on it. Right. I don't, but, uh, no, I don't. Um, but it, it, tell us that story. Okay, well, you know, Helen Wheels was recorded uh, very early on in the Lego sessions, um, so it's definitely part of this body of work. But for some reason, he conceived of it as the single, and he was still thinking in terms of, like, during, well, not just the Beatles. I mean, a lot of British groups put out singles that weren't on their albums. That was the practice. Um, in America, it was completely the opposite. In America, a single was like an ad for the album. You put out the single, people buy the single, they really like it, and then they're going to go buy the album. Um, it wasn't looked at that way in Britain. It was sort of like, if you put it on the album, it means we're making you pay twice for one of the songs. Um, so he wanted it off the album, and he was talked into it by an American capital executive. Al Corey, who basically said, look, with Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon, once we started taking singles off it, it sold, you know, X number more copies, you know, and Paul reluctantly went with that, but said, okay, you know what, you can do it in America. In England, the album has to be the way I conceive it here. And then, after, you know, uh, with Band on the Run as a single. Right. Another chat with Al Corey, and this time, you know, uh, at least, uh, you know, the album was already out, so it wasn't like he could take it off the album. Oh, no, no. Written. Really out, yeah. <laughs> um, but he began to sort of see the reasoning, and just this morning, um, I was writing about you, know, we're, we've just finished with Wings Over America and uh, getting on to. London Town, um, when Maybe I'm Amazed was released as a single, like nobody even, there, there was no argument, there was no discussion, it was like, okay, I, you know, Paul now understands. Uh, and, and it's interesting because Paul, you know, when, during the Helen Wheels discussion, he had a very definite point of view and he wanted it his way. And the compromise was you can have it your way in America, but it has to be my way in England. Um, I once interviewed him, like it was maybe 1990, and one of the questions I asked him was, uh, you know, you had this policy about albums and singles, and yet now um, you'll put out a single, CD single, in the US and in Britain and in Japan, and the Japanese one will have like five <laughs> different versions, all with different A-sides, and if you are a serious collector of your stuff, you have to go to, you know, quite serious expense to get all of these yeah. singles to get the B-sides, you know. Um, and he said, well, here's the thing, uh, you know, First he said, I I'm not the only one who does it, you know, and I said, yes, but you, and he finished the sentence, he said, had a policy, yeah. He said, but let me tell you, that was when I was in the Beatles, and, and this was a very unusual response, I thought, for him. That was when I was in the Beatles, but let me tell you something, I'm not in the Beatles anymore. And so now, if an A&R guy comes to me 
with an interesting idea. When it was the Beatles, the four of us, we could say, yeah, get get out of here. You know, it's not exactly what he said. It was a two-word thing with an expletive. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, you know, I have to think really carefully now if someone comes to me with an idea that they say is going to be a good idea commercially, I have to listen. Uh, and, you know, I don't necessarily have to do it, but I have to take it seriously and consider it. And that's, he wasn't there yet with Helen Wheels. Right. He's there now. Now. Okay. Yeah, that's where it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, I've, I've I'm, uh, I, I think Helen Wheels belongs on the album. Oh, yeah. <laughs> hey, thank you, thank you. Yeah, as I, I think it fits perfectly on the album. I, I love the song, and uh, and I, I think it fits with the whole, you know, it's not all the songs are about this, but the whole issue of, you know, escapism. And, and uh, I, there. yeah, I mean, I, I kind of think I've just seen a face below some rubber soles. There you go. <laughs> Okay, okay, absolutely. Um, but, uh, yeah, do, do you want to uh, talk about, you know, part of the um, the legacy, I think, of this album is how he continues to perform uh, many of the songs uh, on tour. Uh, you know, of course, he performs Band on the Run, uh, Let Me Roll It, uh, Jet, uh, so many, but of course, in recent years, he's even added Mrs. Vanderbilt, um, 1985. Um, you know, I think it just shows uh, the you know enduring legacy uh, of the album, and and uh, I think there are not too many songs. That, well, I guess he hasn't played. There's uh, one. There's there's exactly one song for Band on the Run. Mamunia, right? Alive. Yeah. Mamunia. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah, he's never done that. Yeah. Denny Denny Lane did it live. You can find really? you can find Denny playing Mamunia on uh, YouTube. Really? Yes. Oh, he's, done it. he's done it. He's done the whole album start to finish. Yeah. Yeah. But wow. but he's also done Mamunia separately. Okay. Oh, I didn't know that. He, he did no words on the '79 yeah. tour. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. yeah. They did that one time on that short UK tour that in December it was in that set list, which was a nice gem for that time. Um, you had mentioned uh, Pink Floyd before, and I think towards the end of the album, you know, Paul's commissioning the artwork, thinking about the idea, on the run, they go to Osterley Park to shoot the photograph uh, done by Clive Arrowsmith, you know, and, you know, he wants to get Hypnosis to do the artwork, and Hypnosis has done for work for Floyd and uh, uh, Zeppelin, but really doesn't, <laughs> doesn't take on the Hypnosis look. Why? So talk about uh, Paul and kind of the, the artwork and the direction, why? Why do you think that happened? Well, before I hand it back over to Alan to talk a little bit more, uh, there is the documentary, Squaring the Circle, the story of hypnosis, which yeah. has, it's finishing up its theatrical run. It's going to be on Apple TV shortly. Uh, so it is a great documentary. There's not enough Paul in there, but they do talk about Band on the Run. Uh, they talk about the Wings Over America cover. And they talk about the getting closer Single, which, well, it's not relevant here, but it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, we, we interviewed um, Aubrey Powell of Hypnosis, uh, and uh, Hypnosis was basically two guys. I mean, they hired other people as well, but, um, but it was uh, Storm Ferguson and Aubrey Powell. Uh, when Paul went to them uh, to do the cover, you know, he was... It's funny, you know, we, and, and I'm not sure if this is partly because Adrian, my co-author, Adrian Sinclair, is such a Pink Floyd freak, <laughs> but he has pointed out a million things that Paul did that he feels were influenced by the fact that Pink Floyd had done them. And, you know, during the Red Rose Speedway sessions, Pink Floyd was like in the next studio at EMI, you know, the, the two groups knew each other, and, uh, um, and Paul always had an eye for what was the hit new thing to do, and Hypnosis was a hit new album cover designing firm. Um, the problem is that Paul also always has his own ideas. 
Uh, and he wanted Clive Arrowsmith to shoot the cover. He wanted the cover to be, you know, the wings and a bunch of celebrities uh, uh, looking like they're escaping, they're doing a, a jailbreak. Um, so they hired Hypnosis and said, we want you to do this, but this is the cover we want you to do. Um, and what you could do is you could call up this whole list of celebrities, which we will give to you, and get as many of them as you can to come. And the ones that they got were the ones that were covered. Uh, Thorgerson uh, said that, like, no way. You know, we're a design firm, and that means we design. <laughs> yeah. And Paul said, and, and, and Aubrey Powell said, you know, the thing is, I'm enough of a Beatles fan that um, I can set that aside in this case because, let's face it, it's Paul. And so Aubrey Powell continued with him for, for quite a few albums, and Storm just kept out of it. Well, Storm was there for the band on the run shoot. In, in the video, you can see him, he's the one who's ordering. You, you kneel down, you crouch down here, you put your arm up here, so, I mean, yeah. he was there for that. And yeah. the, the story, as they tell it in the film, is that by the next album, it's like, Paul says, I want the billiard balls, and he's like, yeah. I, I'm, I'm done. Yeah. And, and then Aubrey just took over from there. But he, he should have stuck around, because with Wings Over America, it finally was Aubrey's idea for right. the cover. Um, but, you know, we found this another 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 interviewing story for you. Um, we interviewed Aubrey, and he was great. He has some great quotes, great memories, but some... Is that me? Yeah. Oh, I thought I just turned it off. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, we're talking about the, the Wings Over America cover, and, uh, you know, inside there is a painting by a guy named Jeff Cummings, Cummings yeah. and it's based on a bunch of photos taken during the tour by Robert Ellis. Um, because, you know, the, the picture, if you look in, in Sidewings Over America, that's kind of like a fantasy picture. Right. That, that stage picture never happens, you know, with Paul with the 12-string acoustic and Denny with his double, yeah. you know. Uh, so, and, and Joe bashing away on drums. No. Yeah. Um, so Paul wanted that on the cover, and Aubrey Powell said, you know, I don't think it's good enough for the cover. Uh, let me do, let me show you this idea with a plane and, and all that. Um, but he said, you know, I, I introduced Jeff Cumming to Paul um, because Paul always wanted me to introduce him to people. And it was a great quote, and I had it in there until I realized that we also had a Jeff Cumming interview, so which we hadn't transcribed. So I transcribed the interview, and it turns out that um, Aubrey Powell did not introduce him to, to Paul. Uh, Jeff Cumming had gone to NPL because he was, you know, sort of just out of school and a couple of years earlier and working for an advertising agency and wanted to get into album design. And he went to NPL, like just over the transit, as they say, and said, you know, I want to do some album design. And uh, Brian Brawley, who was MPL's uh, manager at the time, yeah, yeah. Uh, said, okay, I'll tell you what, um, give this a try. And he gave him Thrillington. <laughs> and they liked what he did with Thrillington, although what he did isn't what you see. Eventually, it, it, it was him. But uh, they sent him to Aubrey. And Aubrey said, you know, you want to do some work on uh, Wings Over America, and then that picture was commissioned. Right. Uh, and also, you you know, you can do some work for us for other covers too if you want, which was, you know, a, a thrill for Jeff Cumming, who was a big hypnosis fan too. Um, but it meant that I had to get rid of the quote of um, Aubrey Powell saying, I introduced Jeff Cummings because Paul always wanted me to introduce him to people. <laughs> Too bad. Yeah. But, you know, the outtakes. Yeah, yeah I think when we do the anthology of... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think the cover was obviously a success. Uh, obviously, you know, getting all those people on there to do that. Uh, did any of them say no right away or have to be convinced? 
No, I don't think so. I think they, well, you know, if you look at who they are, I mean, there was John Conte, who was a fighter and was a, a pal of Paul's by then, because one of the, okay, one of the few, one of the surprises for me in volume one, and uh, so far I think there are much more surprises in volume two. Oh, um, boy. <laughs> one of the surprises for me is that Paul really was a big boxing fan. Well, I don't, yeah. don't understand it, but, you know, uh, and John Conte was from Liverpool, right? And uh, so they were friends. And then there's Mike Parkinson, uh, James Tober, you know. Um, don't really know what the connection is, but you know these were people who happened to be in London at the time because it was sort of it was not only would you appear on Paul's album cover, but like we're shooting it on Thursday, you know. <laughs> so they had to already be there and. Uh, uh, I don't think anyone said no. Uh, they did, however, before the album shoot, go out to have a nice Italian oh, right. lunch with lots of wine. Yeah. And everybody was sort of falling over drunk, especially <laughs> apparently Denny Lane. I don't, you know, I don't want to make it seem like I have a thing about Denny Lane. <laughs> no, no. But history know, shows. There are, you know, the, uh, I think Clive Aerosmith told us that, you know, just in. One shot, he's about to take it, and Denny falls over. <laughs> you know, and it was a very low light situation. He had he had had gotten a spotlight, a, a ladder, spotlight. right? Yeah, he was and he was up on the ladder and had the spotlight, and it, it turned out the spotlight really wasn't enough for what they needed, um, and so it had to be okay. When I say I'm shooting, you know. Or, you a really long to, exposure. Yeah. yeah, you have to be absolutely still for like three seconds or whatever. You know? To get this shot. And, and so it, it took some doing to get that shot. Uh, <laughs> when you look at that iconic cover now, yeah, and you know the story behind it, it makes you laugh when you think about it. Um, we are wrapping up a few minutes. We're going to throw it out to the audience. Any questions for Alan or any of the panelists? So one last. Uh, Clement Freud. Why Clement Freud? <laughs> I, you know, everybody else is a, is a famous, well-known figure that somebody will know. And then there's Sigmund Freud's grandson. Yeah. Right. But he was also, I think he was also a member of Parliament and um, might have uh, had, wasn't he also an artist? Uh, I think he had some, but I mean, yeah. he wasn't like, well-known. He probably was pals with, with Paul, you know. Okay. Um, so. Yeah. Tony, question? Um, I think of the Best Wings album because it's the most consistent and it has the theme of songs about escape and nature and freedom. And yeah, thematic, thematic record. Yeah. I, wa I wanted to ask, there's that John Lennon quote where he said Paul had to be scared to make a great album. Do you think he was proven right in any way? Um, only in the sense of like what we were talking about before where the band members had defected and he had he, he, he was determined to show that uh, that he didn't need anyone that he could do a better album than you know than, than anyone so I don't know if that really if scared is exactly the right word but it was kind of like goaded into it in a way by circumstances. Yeah. Anybody else? No? Okay. Well, Alan, you can tell us, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you're working on. You told us that you're up to London town, but how about a little information for the audience on Volume 2? Okay, so Volume 2 will go up to 1980. Um, and we're not entirely sure when in 1980, but if it's up to me, it's January 1980 when he's arrested okay. in Japan. Um, and then there's the question of... Do we leave him in jail and make it a cliffhanger? <laughs> <laughs> or do we end the book when he's on the plane going back? Which I, I think we're both sort of leaning towards. Uh, we sometimes talk about, you know, we want to go all the way through 1980. That then means dealing with John's death. Yeah, that's a lot. I can't face at the moment. Yeah. Also, you know, the, the first book was 720 pages, which was a lot more than they wanted. And... The second book already has, I think, one more year worth to cover than the first book did, and there's no way they're going to give us more than 720 pages. But you think the activity you're going to be covering, you're going to go up to 1980, but the, especially the years like 77 and 78, you should primarily 
he's not touring, he's just recording. Right. You know, and he's and he's recording, you know, especially back to the egg in the spring of 78, he's doing that in at the replica studio. So, you know, he's not he's not traveling. I mean, he's like he was earlier, like in volume one. And he's also doing McCartney too. Right, at, at the farm so, in Scotland. So that's like another album um, to deal with in that period that hasn't come out yet by the time the book ends. Um, uh, yeah, so, but we have a lot of interesting stuff um, uh, that, you know, probably Adrian wouldn't want me to divulge, no. but I can <laughs> hint, okay? He really was keen on doing a film with wings. Uh, and he wanted it to be a sci-fi film, right? And he talked to a number of sci-fi authors and directors and got really close to collaborating with them, but in each case the collaboration fell apart for various reasons. Um, George Lucas and Gene Roddenberry. Uh, not George Lucas. Uh, but that would have been a good, um, hmm. you know, that was right in the period Star Wars came out in 77. Yep. So. I thought he talked to George Lucas. Uh, did he? Yeah, I, I thought so. I, he uh, talked to Ron Berry and he talked to... William Freak? I remember. Okay, <laughs> I may be wrong, but, so, but the, the Ron Berry we're certain of. Okay, if, if, if he talked to George Lucas, I mean, Adrian may have researched that and I haven't gotten to it yet. Okay. But, uh, but I'm sure Adrian would have mentioned that. Um, so, uh... We'll see. Yeah. So uh, volume two, volume two definitely will include. Wings will still be existing as a band when volume two. Yeah, because um, uh, yeah, sort of. Right. You know, basically, the Japanese experience kind of was the end of Wings, except that they continued to record little bits on and off through about 1982. Right. Here and there. Um, and then one day, uh, Steve Holly and. Lawrence Juber picked up their copy of Melody Maker or one of the other British uh, music magazines and read that Wings had broken up and called Paul and he said, yeah, I've, I've been meaning to talk to you guys. <laughs> so so the, the end of Wings is a little bit amorphous, you know. Um, that will see in volume three. That will be in volume three. Volume three. Right. Well, I'd like to thank you very much, Alan, for uh, the discussion on Band on the Run today. We're just time is just marching on, and uh, thank you for your time today. Thank you, Kit. Thank you, Ed. Thank you, everybody else here for attending. And uh, keep your eyes peeled for Volume Two at the end of 2024. We're hoping. That's right. All right. Thank you.